0: Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. My name is Stacy Webb, and I'm coming to you this afternoon um, from Back in Time Biz Publishing. Um, we have a show here at Blog Talk called Legacy and Identity, and it's usually hosted by Scott Sewell, but he is out um, for the for a summer vacation and uh, a little retreat away, and so I'm filling in today. I've got a lot of really great updates. Um, As some of you know, that we did go to Liberty County, Texas this summer. Actually, we went to McAdoochus, and we stayed um, at the Tall Barrett House again this year for the Goins Book Research reunion. We also spent um, a Saturday in Vernon Parish Um, with the Vernon Parish Historical uh, Society there and gave a presentation on GTT Gone to Texas. But we were there specifically in Nacogdoches to research for the Goins, the upcoming Goins book, which is, if some of you have followed, you, you know that we have really opened a lot of new doors to the Goins family through DNA research and further research of, of of documents and things that that were not uh we, we knew about a lot of these documents that were stored at Liberty, um, through the Goins Foundation um publishings over a number of years, Arlie, Goins, those, and uh we knew about this lawsuit over the Nancy Gowens John, Nancy Johnson Goins League and Labor that she received from Sam Houston. Um she actually did not receive the League in Labor until after her death, and so it was assigned to the heirs of Nancy Johnson. Well, we had known that there was a lawsuit there um, in the 1930s, actually 1934, which she received the League in Labor, I believe, in like 1856 or something, somewhere around in there. Uh, so it's more than 100 years. Uh, had passed and and so we were quite shocked to see ninety seven um unknown or undocumented heirs that were mentioned in that lawsuit and I have put up a i have put up a copy of all the names of those uh folks that we've been uh that were named in that in that lawsuit and and they can be read here at blog talk radio in the little kiosk that goes uh, with this show, um, there was now a, a, a several affidavits given, um, but one of the most exciting things we're working through the 97 heirs, uh, doing each person's genealogy and and who how they descended from Nancy Johnson Goins and how they were included in the heirs. The the two most stunning um, additions to our Goins family was. Sam or Samuel Gowen who there was an affidavit given by a George uh I can't remember his first name but the affidavit is here on uh the kiosk that the little uh slide show that goes around during this radio show uh Samuel uh Gowen was uh, mentioned uh, in this affidavit as actually being a brother to her late husband, Thomas. Okay, and so this was pretty shocking because we were never able to document any brothers or sisters, you know, siblings from his parents. And, and we also, you know, um, were not quite sure, you know, who he was, um, except that he they arrived in Lafayette Parish uh, Louisiana, um, sometime in the early 18-teens, after going through Georgia and Alabama, they arrived there, and uh, he passed away in 1826, uh, I believe, his uh, his will, his will and Last Testament were filed there in the Lafayette Parish uh courthouse. And and we've known about that document for years. Uh, however, we just did not realize. Uh, let me read this. The Last Will and Testament of Thomas Goins, May 13, 1826, probate in Lafayette Parish, Louisiana. Be it remembered that on the 18th day of May, Anno, demonio, Anno Domini, 1,826 before me, Thomas B. Bruggiers, judge of the parish of Lafayette and ex officio notary public within and for said parish personally came and appeared James Taylor Wright. One of the testamentary testamentary executors of the last will and testament of Thomas Goins, late of said parish, deceased, and also appeared Nancy Goins, widow of said deceased, Stephen Goins, Arminda Goins, Sally Goins, of full age. Thomas Goins, 19 years of age, duly emancipated and aided and assisted in these presents by Lancelot Porter, his special curator, also Annie Goins, of the province of Texas, and duly represented in these presents by her cur- curate, her curator and Anne Goins of the province, excuse me, and mother Nancy Goins, all of legal heirs and descendants of the said deceased, who have declared and confessed that on the 26th day of of May, 1825, that the said Thomas Goins, Sr., did execute his last will and testament, by which he bequeathed and divided his title properties as follows. Um, He gave and bequeathed to each of his children, um, a slave, and uh, Annie received a, a young Negro girl by the name of Clorinda, about six years old. Armentia Goins received one Negro boy named Ari. And he gave and bequeathed to his son Stephen Goins one Negro boy named Roger, age ten. He gave and bequeathed to his daughter Sally Goins a a Negro girl named Kitty, age seven years. He gave and bequeathed to his son Thomas, a Negro boy named Riley, aged four years, which concluded all the property of the tester aforesaid and so um we you know we knew that they were slave owners and and we knew that they were free people of color, which kind of made it a little unusual to also be slave owners but however, they were slave owners, and they by all. Appearances. Uh, Thomas also traded slaves uh, with people like Aaron Cherry and John Cherry, uh, who ended up marrying his children later on in Texas. These 97 heirs of uh, Samuel would have been a brother uh, to Thomas, uh, and and when when I when we worked through his genealogy as the best that we could, a lot of the A lot of the uh, families, uh, like on Ancestry.com, which we call, you know, uh, the Ouija board, um, not documented, possibly, um, just just getting a basic sketch of, of who they thought that person was and who his descendants were. But he obviously showed up later in Texas from Tennessee. And so Sam took us back to Tennessee, back to Newman's Ridge, uh, back to Granger County, Tennessee, and uh, he actually kind of moved around the territories quite a bit uh, I think in eleven children, seven or eleven children that all of them had been born in different states, and it would look it would also appear that they went from like Mississippi to Arkansas um, back to Tennessee and then back to Mississippi and uh, to Texas and so they were. You know uh, Quite uh, The average Redbone family Who did migrate Continually Throughout their lives And and uh, A very nomadic spirit So we're very excited About those new Findings uh, uh, That have taken us Back to Tennessee And and back to Some of the people That we were sure We were related to Among the Melungeons But however uh, we were never able to connect back this this was our in this family line this was actually our first direct connection back uh, to the Melungeon colony there at Newman's Ridge, uh, which we're very excited about. Um, you know we always knew that we were and, and we'd had matches through our DNA, but you know straight back to that family. So um, to elaborate on the DNA results of the Goins book, um, this is just a recap because, as most of you already know, uh, we did um, document this this family. We had two testers uh, from the Texas East Texas Red Bones to test their Goins. And we had two that tested from the Louisiana Goins, and we did not match one another. There was two. There was two sets of Goins that we were all related very closely to, um, but they, however, were not uh, an exact surname match. Meaning that the two Goins lines, though they were related probably maternally, they were not direct descendants of of the same progenitor. So we had a group who belonged to the Jeremiah Goins or the Philip and Kizzy Ash Nash and the James Goins uh, who descended from, they the, this group descended from a white Irish indentured servant by the name of William Goins who um, we actually, they actually still have a fiddle uh, which will be, Shown in the book, we have pictures of it, and uh, it will be shown in the evidence of their descendancy from uh, William Goins, uh, an Irish indentured servant. However, something very interesting that came out of their uh, DNA as well includes an exact haplo match to a very unusual haplo group, which is only Known among gypsy men, so that was quite astonishing and so the second set of which I descend from from East Texas, which was uh William Collins Goin family and uh William Simon Gowin family. we were a perfect match for one another. These two men, uh, Simon and Hadley Goins, were also uh, heirs to the estate of William Goins of Nacogdoches. And so we were his only blood relatives that were named in his estate as his nephews. Therefore, that would make Thomas the brother of William Goins, Jr. of Nacogdoches. And it would also make him, by affidavit from this Nancy Johnson lawsuit, the brother of Sam. I've never seen him. They have not used the name Samuel in any of the paperwork. They just go by Sam. And so... um, I would imagine that his name, his formal name was Samuel, but uh, we're going to go by Sam. That's all we really have him listed by. But, however, that did hook into the Melungeon group, and we're very excited for these connections. These two family lines also were exact Y-DNA match, which means that these, the following men came from exactly the same forefather. They were exact Y-DNA matches for one another. And it was Leonard Covington Sweat, William Billy Powell, or better known as Osceola, the great Seminole lawyer, and um, we matched a Warwick Reason Warwick. We matched the William Williams line, also of East Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, North and South Carolina. And uh, we were one genetic distance from the old Jock Perkins line. And so what this all means is that these five men go in. Warwick, Sweat, Powell, or a.k.a. Osceola, and Perkins, uh, well, not Perkins, but um, came from exactly the same forefather. Perkins, old Jock Perkins' line, was probably a very, very close relative to these four men. So their forefather would have been a, a, a very close relative to old Jock Perkins' father. Now, um that led us to so much more with this Goins book and it has just been a whirlwind of information. The book has been put on hold several times and is currently on hold. Uh we 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 have a lot of it prepared and we may split the book up because we are up to about 500-plus pages of genealogy and pictures, and we have not even begun to add the Texas, Louisiana genealogy for all of these matched men. And so we're, we're discussing uh, dividing this book up. We also have a great announcement about the book. It is going to be edited by Emmett Melendez, and so Emmett is a relative of the Goins. He, he's actually a descendant of the Jeremiah Goins line and Serafina Drake, a uh, couple. And so he's he's um, a great Texas historian. And he's going to help us edit this book. And uh, because we have so many dynamics going on in it, uh, we, we really want to present it in an understandable uh, manner. And so we're working currently to do that. Um, we absolutely uh, enjoyed our time down in Nacogdoches, but we ha- we, we got our plate was full. And uh, with 97 errors and, and chasing down uh, genealogy with with 97 heirs is, is is quite a work in progress, and so we're currently working through as quickly as we can. But um, when I came home from Texas, I decided to get a hold of um, because Osceola, you know, the great Seminole resistance leader to final removals, it, it was is such a famous person, and his. Background and his history have been written on extensively. However, his family has not been written on extensively, uh, and this is what we're interested in. We um, uh, we're we're interested in his children and his wives and uh, his parents. Of course, uh, the the legend goes that he was the son of. Uh, or that he was, they thought that he was the son of William Billy Powell Sr., who had married his mother after his birth. Or, uh, you know, we talk about marriage in a Christian sort of way, in a white Christian sort of way, and and this is not... Um, This is not proper when we're dealing with Native Americans and ethnic people. Uh, They were not especially Christians, and they were not especially marriage-type documents or marriage-type vows. Uh, uh, I would call them mates. Um, And so we know that, you know, William Billy Powell uh, Sr. was actually – has been proven that he was a white man and the DNA that returned for the match to Osceola's descendants was not a white man and so we know for certain that uh, Osceola claiming that William Billy Powell, not being his father, was probably legitimate, and so there was an other stories that said he was, you know, an unknown half-breed Indian. There is also some documents that say he was a Spaniard, and so um, the the DNA actually comes back as a North African haplo, and so. Um, our matches are to Egypt and one astonishing match to this male DNA for all of these surnames Powell, Warwick, Williams, Gowen, and one genetic distance from Perkins is the fact that their Y DNA perfectly matched to King Ramesses the Third of Egypt. And so uh that was quite an interesting, you know, connection there as well. So so we, we know quite literally that William, Billy Powell Sr., could not have been Osceola's father. And uh, Osceola's mother, I, I want to talk about his family just a little bit because there has not been a whole lot written about the family and whenever he died at Fort Moultrie uh, supposedly of natural causes he, he arrived there under a white flag of truce uh, with about hundred and eighty warriors family uh, extended you know relatives and his tribal people arrived there with him and were incarcerated with him him at uh, Fort Moultrie which is on Sullivan Island in South Carolina they actually met somewhere else first and then they were moved to Sullivan's Island at Fort Sumter and so um, I want to talk about his family just a little bit his mother was Anne Polly Moniac Copinger and her mother and father father was Don Jose Maria Copinger who had actually come from Havana, Cuba, and he died in 1730, and he died in 1833 in St. Augustine, Florida. And his mother was uh, a mixed-blood woman by the name of Nancy Ann McQueen, which we do, the McQueen name uh, does run through the Red Bone people and so they do, the McQueens do marry back into the Red Bones quite a bit later on, but we're just not sure how they connect back. And she was actually the daughter of James McQueen, and he was born in 1683 in Londonderry, Ireland. And he died at Florida City, Dade, Florida, in 1811. His Her mother was Catherine Redstick Frazier and we don't Know but we're pretty sure That she was probably a descendant Of William Weatherford, Who was the A white man Who lived among um, The Red Sticks And who You know uh, fought uh, uh, During the the Great Creek Wars So whenever I got home I I Decided that I was going to look into Osceola a little, a little more extensively, perhaps than than just the general books available and the general literature available on him. And and what I found out was quite interesting. Um, most of the books written, you know, and this is probably true of all. Um, you know, books that are written, is that they depend heavily on things that were written previously. And so my main objective and goal is to get to the source document in which they wrote their books and look at these documents and these, um, um, you know, presentations myself. Because a lot of times, you know, they would just take the facts from those documents or that, you know, documentation and use the materials that they want. And so I was not necessarily looking for uh, material that concerned his leadership among the creek or anything such as that. I wanted to get to his family, and I wanted to find out about who he was, you know, married to and who his children were and how how in the world did um, we... Okay. Um, you know, end up being exact biological matches or why DNA matches for one another. And so this this, um, took me on a journey uh, to speak with a man at uh, Fort Moultrie at Sullivan's Island. Um, The, the, um, oh goodness, they are the, 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 the Parks Department has taken over Fort Moultrie of Fort Sumter. Um, it, fort Sumter was used heavily until, you know, after the Civil War, and then it was pretty much um, abandoned by the military and left, you know, unattended. It was something; it was a, it was not needed um, base anymore or fort. And so it kind of went unattended. And uh when Osceola died, um, supposedly he was buried there, uh, at the fort. At, and, and this is what the parks department um you know, they they are in charge of keeping his grave and he has a plaque that was placed there and, and some things. But over the years uh, curiosities and people had come along and attempted or did dig up his bones, and um, of course his head was not buried with him. It was his head. A death mask was prepared, and then his head was removed at death, and and it was pickled and carried around about by the surgeon who. You know, the doctor, who, physician who had attended him But it was later given to someone else And then it went to a library later on And the library actually burned And so his his headless body supposedly is buried at Fort Moultrie And so this, this is the common, you know, knowledge of, of his heritage And where he ended up So I wrote to Fort Moultrie or called Fort Moultrie, and I spoke with, um, you know, the Division of History um, and the Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation. And they uh, mentioned, of course, they kind of just gave me the rhetoric of, you know, read this book, read that book, which I've read every book, but uh, very limited information on his family. Pretty much just Repeated over and again the same Things and I don't really even know If those are facts or not but So he mentioned in our phone Call that uh, You know that they had done An archaeological dig In 1968 And so I asked him You know if he could part With a copy of You know this archaeological dig and, And could I please get a copy sent to me and he absolutely agreed and uh fourth of july was coming up and so he said that you know he would send it sometime after the fourth of july and i received it just shortly thereafter and and i was quite quite astonished to read his um this this archaeological report which i thought was actually a dig um but however it was only conducted the dig was only conducted around the, the the burial or what they thought was the burial and they go through and they document that the plaque had uh, moved several times had been changed several times and that the only reason that they did the archaeological dig was just to dig around the site and uh, the burial site and make sure that it had not been tampered with. And so they did do this, and then they covered it back up. However, the Tourist Bureau had a great deal to do with the outcome of this death location or burial location. And so I, I'm not quite sure understand the motives of why they did not go on and make sure that his body was still there because many people had taken liberty and, and and went around the country with with bones and remains that were said to be Osceolas. And so um but they didn't and um that was uh disappointing that they did not actually dig the body up, and examine the grave goods or anything like that. They did not do that. All they did was dig around it, and they determined that it had not been tampered with, covered it back up, and made this report. However, in this, you know, research that they did of, of Osceola, They did also make a comment or, you know, did some research on the fact that a letter was written to, um, I believe, to the Parks Department at one point in the 60s where they claimed that uh, his cousin, who was Thomas Gibbs from Sumter, actually from, he was, he had land, he had a home in Charleston, Thomas Gibbs had land in Charleston, and he also had, um, but his home was in Privateer, which if you know anything about the Red Bones at all, you do know that um, the old issue, Red Bones, or some of the original Red Bones, or the people that, were thought to be red bones later on were from privateers and from sumter south carolina and we pony hill is written for the goins book he's written on the sumter goins um there and the privateer goins family and so it was very quite. You know, very interesting that someone had come forward so many years later and said, no, 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 Um, Osceola is not buried here. That Thomas Gibbs, when Osceola became very sick at Fort Moultrie, that he had been taken to his home, to Thomas Gibbs' home in Charleston, and that he left, he left, or excuse me, and that he was he he stayed there on his sick bed, and that he had died there at Thomas Gibbs' home, and that they had taken his body with his head to the Gibbs family cemetery, and buried there, and so uh, they they really did not lend any credit to this report, which is, you know, normally what they do. And so uh, also we must remember that Osceola's Grave is the number one visited tourist attraction there. So I think in all of South Carolina. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that I read that. And so it would not... It would not really behoove them to say, oh, yeah, he may be buried somewhere else. So, um, you know, I don't know about that story, but we do know that that connected Osceola to the Gibbs family. I don't know how he would be a cousin. It says first cousin. And so that would mean that possibly his mother was a Gibbs, no, because his mother was not a Gibbs, so we couldn't figure that. Possibly his father was a Gibbs. I don't know, um, but maybe it'll turn out with more DNA testing, and and we can figure out who he was. And, um, you know, there's some other claims that, um, uh, you know, by different um, publishers along the way, the Southern Patriot in 1838. Informed its readers, death of Osceola, the celebrated Indian chief. You know, he was he was extremely celebrated and written about. Um, you know, during that time, I did not ever run across any publications that would confirm or corroborate uh, the story of him dying at Thomas Gibbs' home. But um, it, it is interesting to also know that I did note within the. The documentations at Fort Moultrie that there was a warrior who died there at Fort Moultrie um, about two we- two or three weeks before Osceola died, and that um, he had been buried there, and so, but no one ever. Um, identifies his grave and so I'm wondering the only excuse that was given by uh, the Parks Department was that for the the story or the letter and, and the information about Thomas Gibbs and that they took Osceola in and that he died out of his home and then they removed his remains to privateer township to Sumter and to the uh, private Gibbs cemetery. The only the only evidence that was was ever given about that was, you know, that that couldn't be true because no white people would allow Osceola to be buried in their family cemetery and what what was not taken into account that statement could not be true for the Gibbs family, because we know these Gibbs family was were not white and and they were red bones as well and so uh, that part of that excuse for this scenario or story of him being buried there not being true you know really wasn't a good excuse, and it really was not um. You know uh, uh, Applied to the Gibbs family whatsoever Because they were not white And I'm sure white people at the time Would not have enjoyed having You know a great Seminole um, Indian chief Buried on their land But the Gibbs would probably Not fall into that category Um Some of the things that, you know, there's a list here Of the things that were buried with him And then there's a list of the things that ended up In the hands of the military And I'm sure you can hear that heavy sigh Because uh, this was just a sad situation Um, Many of the military men who were present there at Fort Moultrie, ended up with many of his personal belongings, many personal belongings that belonged to um, Osceola, his warriors. Jumper was there. Uh, All of his his lead head chief men had come. However, uh, there was a measles outbreak, and so when they first arrived to Fort Moultrie, Jumper was not with them, and several other of them chiefs had stayed behind uh, because they had measles outbreak. But they ended up coming later and joining the um, the truce, you know, um, treaty there. And, and that was pretty much a trick anyway. They tricked them into coming under a white flag of truce, and then, um, in, you know, then they – incarcerated all of them, including women, children, um, old people, whatever, you know, and then because he would not release the location of Hudjo, his little village that they had been hiding out in the Everglades for over a year, uh, no one would give away the location, and somehow the military Figured out where it was at, and they marched out and uh I think I think it was two days later some of Osceola's warriors broke loose from Fort Moultrie and were two days behind the military march to Hajo and When they got to Hajo, it went viral all over the world. every newspaper in the world carried on what happened and what the military had done. Uh, Who was left at Hacho was pretty much infirmed people who had been suffering from the measles outbreak, women, children, old people. Uh, There was no, um, you know, warriors there to say, you know, except a few possibly that were sick or what have you. And when Osceola's warriors arrived, they had put small babies on bayonets and old people's heads on pikes and uh, this absolutely went viral what happened at Hacho and so that part of this story we hope to be able to tell but just to touch lightly on and um, but what what was also some exciting um, new news about uh, Osceola and our relationship to him was that. I located, out of of some of the documentation, I located um, a very rare book. Um, I had to get a hold of it by way of of really working to get it. And I, excuse me, I'm trying to find this book. Okay, here we go. Um, Came in. Uh, recently, just within the last few days, and it 's a narrative the early days and remembrances of Osceola Nikonochi, the Prince of Inkonchada and Inconchati, excuse me, and let me put my glasses back on. I just laid them down and uh read the the this to you um there is some pictures there is a picture on the internet uh on in various locations of Osceola Nicenoci, okay, and and this picture, this this portrait done by Caitlin. The reason that I found this manuscript kind of was because when I studied that piece of art by Caitlin of uh, um I I noticed that the the portrait was not painted until two years after Osceola's death. And so I, I'm thinking in my mind, how could Catlin paint a portrait of a man two years after his death when he was a young boy, you know, five, six years old, because this picture, this portrait is of, you know, maybe a six- eight-year-old boy at the most. And so it was just kind of perplexing as to... How in the world Catlin would have been able to recreate a portrait of a dead man when he was a child? And so this led me to look for this manuscript, and, and I found it. Osceola Nicanochi was not Osceola Nicanochi, or not Osceola William Billy Powell. Osceola Nikonoji was the son of his sister. And so he had been named for Osceola, but in fact was his nephew. He was also the uh, son of Ikonchadi Miko, king of the Red Hills in Florida. And so uh, this was quite. An interesting manuscript Uh, It also had several new portraits That I had not seen And that I did not recognize From the internet It was written in 1841 And it is unnamed Written by his guardian Now this guardian uh, Lived along the James River And he knew The Seminoles well And Nicanochi, Osceola Nicanochi, was present at Fort Moultrie when Osceola was there. And um, when they were held captive there, he had about 190, at least 190. Several of them had died because some of them were sick whenever they got there. Uh, Well over 200. I I saw in one publication that it said well over 200 came with him. And so... um, not quite sure of the exact number, but it was quite a few of his people had come under a white flag of truce, and the military, um, you know, took them and held them captive. And so, but uh, Osceola Nicanochi was adopted uh, by a a guardian that ended up – Right away, not long after he adopted him, after he got custody of the little guy, um, because he was an orphan, and he took him to England. And he took him to England for his safety. Um, People would walk up to him and speak to him, and uh, people of Europe were thoroughly concerned for the safety of Nicanochi, uh, that, if he was returned to the United States, that the military would take him take him captive and remove him to the west and or kill him and so um uh what was also interesting about this guardian who is unnamed in this manuscript uh he also sponsored Catelyn, the one who did all of these beautiful portraits. Of all the Native American Indians, including Osceola and um, many, many others, I mean, hundreds of beautiful, beautiful portraits that we are copyright free to this day. And in fact, we include on the cover of the Redbone Heritage Foundation's Redbone Chronicles, which can also be bought at Amazon. it's It's been a really good seller, and it's got a lot of great information. And we will be getting together on another uh, publishing. Of, we have uh, probably about six of those books that just need to be put back together. They were old publishings that we had done with the Redbone Heritage Foundation, but... Um, we had not formally published until this time. And what I did is, is I took um, one chronicle at a time and just added stories and added articles and essays into it. And and it, you know, we're very proud of that publishing. And, and you can pick up a copy at um, Amazon.com. You can just type in Redbone Chronicles or you can just type in "back in time publishing," B A C K T Y or I N T Y M E, uh, back in time T Y M E, and all one word, and it should pop up all of our publishings, which include um, many books uh, on the history of the U.S. color line, and so you can you can do that. But um, until then. Um, you know, Nicanochie was quite an interesting character. Um, Catelyn went to London with the Guardian who adopted Nicanucci. Uh, What happened to Catelyn was quite an interesting story as well because I started researching him and uh, why would he go to England with this man and this Indian child. What I was able to ascertain was that the United States Congress had actually uh, hired him to do these portraits of, the, of various Indians, just go out into uh, the wilds and, and certain um, uh, high, high men among, you know, uh, among the Indians, among the Native groups, all the different uh, native tribes he would come in and do these beautiful uh color portraits, and that the United States Congress had promised to purchase those portraits from him and so after Osceola after he went and four days before Osceola's death, Catlin finished his 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 portrait of him, which uh, Osceola, uh, did not or so he would not speak English, and and so he put on a front that he did not understand English. But however, he had been to, uh, from what I read, he had been, uh, to, uh, you know, he had spoken English earlier in his life, and his mother spoke, I'm sure, his his family were mixed blood, but you know, I really don't know. He, he, could have not understood it thoroughly, but I think that he just kinda of refused to speak English and he always took an interpreter with him. But um four days before his death, uh Catelyn finished this this portrait of him and um this is this the one that we see always see with the the beautiful gorgots around his neck which he was he was um noted as wearing, and so, um, you know, uh, why the um, the United States Congress, in the end, uh, refused to purchase these portraits, I don't know the reasons why, um, but a manuscript author and the man who adopted Nicanochi sponsored Catlin to bring all of those portraits to London, and so he packed them all up whenever the United States Congress refused to purchase them shortly after Osceola's death. Uh, it must have been fairly quickly that he went to the Congress and asked, you know, to purchase the, the set and they refused um, because he was obviously in London uh, just not long after nikonochi and the author arrived and his Um, Portraits were actually Displayed at the new Egyptian museum and So in London It may not have been Called the new Egyptian museum It may have just been called the Egyptian museum But I Felt how ironic Was this That Excuse me That Here are why DNA perfectly matched King Ramesses III. And then these portraits are put on display uh, at the Egyptian Museum. I thought that was quite ironic. But uh, regardless, um, the book talks about Nicanochi every single day would make a trip to the Egyptian Museum. And he studied every one of those portraits and looked at those. And so um, I'm going to pick up here in just one moment. I'm going to take just a short break, play a little bit of music, and um, I'll be right back with you. I have a, a couple of callers on the line, and so I want to speak with them and, um, and catch you up. But we're just going to take a little intermission, and I'll be right back with you. Enjoy the music.